This is Eric Corey. Now, in previous podcasts, I've tried to stay out of the way of the different story thing, you know, personally, like not making it about me so as to provide a substantive story that everyone can relate to. It's always been my objective to get us all on the same page, to create a collective that puts less emphasis on divisive issues of the day and more on the big picture stuff. Because like I've said many times, we can get so much more accomplished if we just drop all these pretentious and self-serving positions and instead decide to work together. Which brings me to my up-close and personal experiences with the issue of immigration. If it hasn't already moved to the top of our nation's priorities before this podcast gets published, immigration will now dominate the headlines for months to come. And it will be the latest political football to be thrown around, all to the delight of the selfish and narrow-minded masses. People the media outlet can poll as they turn the screws to give themselves something to talk about. It's nothing more than manufacturing a crisis to fill the void until the next virus or impeachment trial. I'm not saying that immigration is not a crisis. It's been a crisis for decades that never seems to get solved. You see, the immigration problem is always there when you need it. It gets rolled out with a new coat of paint, and a different angle on the devastating human cost of it all, and it's used to bludgeon your political enemies just when you need it the most. All you have to do is wait for the new cycle to cycle around to an opportune time and bring it up again. And is it really just a coincidence that the southern border is once again being breached by an onslaught of people seeking a better life? At a time when such a distraction is needed to keep us at each other's throats and preventing us from agreeing on something more productive and less destructive. Anyways, back to my personal story on immigration. Now, I moved from the Philadelphia metropolitan area, South Jersey to be exact, when I was 18 years old, and I landed in San Diego, California. Man, I felt like I was on a different planet. I had no experience with the culture of the area and no pre-programmed bias as a result. My eyes were never more wide open than when I changed coasts. Compared to where I came from, everyone seemed to love each other out here. It was like, sup, dude, serves great today. I mean, it was paradise, beautiful people, sunshine, and everyone was smiling. Now, it's not that the East Coast doesn't have a similar warmth. It's just that out here, it's more overtly displayed. You've got to get past the hard crust of an East Coaster before you can see any of their beauty, which is most certainly there. So here I am on Planet Claire, California in the late 1970s. It was a wonderful time to be alive in Southern California. I mean, punk rock and new wave music were just kicking in, and I felt like I was in the middle of a cultural revolution. Now, prior to that time, the only taco I ever ate came from Jack in the Box, and my appreciation for Mexican food was immediate. I mean, I never ate so much cheese in my life, and I'm Italian, and I regret not paying attention in Spanish class at high school. And I only took Spanish because everyone said it was the easiest language and you had to take a language. I mean, I was never going to speak Spanish in Belmar, New Jersey. I never even met anyone that spoke Spanish. And then, bam, there I am, just a few months later, living in a city where half the population speaks Spanish. Oh, the irony. I was able to make friends very quickly when I found out that the Mexican and Italian customs and traditions were pretty much the same things. I mean, the amazing food, the appreciation for beer, and the chilled tequila made me feel right at home, only with a different menu. I traveled south of the border extensively, mostly to fish in the fertile waters of the Sea of Cortez, and for the first time, I visited a different country and saw a different people. 
I thought I was a smart guy until I realized how much I didn't know about other countries' traditions and how differently they see the world from me and my East Coast attitudes towards things. To say I was humbled nowhere near describes my experience. I was made to feel small, and yet I was totally amazed. And that's just one culture in one country. There are thousands of others that I also don't know anything about. What I also didn't know anything about were any of the decades-old biases that exist here, just like they do everywhere else. Within days of my arrival, I was taught the proper pejoratives to use for Mexicans, or more like a series of them. Yeah, it's the same here. People separated only by the color of their skin and at odds with each other for whatever reason it is that promotes such feelings. I'm now living in a town with two distinct languages and colors, and for the most part, aside from the occasional bigot, people here mostly get along and coexist rather peacefully. Out here, we see so much more of each other because we can party year-round. There is no snow or bitterly cold weather that keeps us indoors and isolated from each other. Every weekend, we're at the beach or at the park or in someone's backyard socializing. As a result, my experience has been that, while we are not absent prejudice, it's just not as prevalent here on the West Coast as it is on the East Coast. Again, as I have seen it. So when it comes to discussions about immigration, let me share what I have personally experienced, and in the course of that discussion, provide what I believe needs to be done to actually solve the problem. Now, one of my first exposures to the issue of immigration was in the late 1970s, just a few months after my arrival. Now, back then, here in San Diego, at the Mexican border, every day, just before sundown, people would gather at the border on the Mexican side in ever-increasing numbers that eventually grew to the thousands. And at a single moment, they would all initially scale and then eventually tear down a portion of the chain-link border fence and all charge across it at the same time. Hundreds of people scurrying in different directions to evade the meager contingent of border control agents that manned the area who were charged with stopping the invasion. The plan was simple. Overwhelm the immigration agents with sheer numbers. It would allow them to catch just a few while the overwhelming majority ran free into the United States. This was thousands of people every night. This had been going on for years, for all to see, and I was blown away when I found out about it. I mean, how is this okay with anyone? Allowing hundreds of thousands of people a year the opportunity to willfully break the law and start this underground life in a country that promises freedom to its citizens? I mean, it's all so hard to wrap one's head around. I was so moved by it that I personally went to the border one night to see it for myself. It seemed incredibly inhumane. And apparently this was the acceptable immigration policy of the U.S. at the time. And it was that way for years. Now, eventually the problem became so big to ignore, and more and more candidates were running and winning public office with the promise of solving the problem. Now, there were many things that were done to help fix the problem in the intervening years, and I don't want to oversimplify the process. But for brevity's sake, I'll cut to the chase to a time when everyone all agreed on a solution. A solution that would end all the debate, and one that everyone would give a little something to get a little something. It was truly a bipartisan and viable solution that we all agree would work in everyone's best interest. And that is the new law back at the time that was called the Amnesty Act. It was officially known as the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. The bill's sponsors were a Republican senator named Simpson and a Democratic representative named Mazzoli. This was a heavily debated and well-researched piece of evolutionary legislation. It was something we all agreed on. I can't stress that part enough. 
we were able to agree on a landmark piece of legislation where each side agreed to make concessions for the good of the people and to get this long overdue bill signed into law. The bill had two basic components. One side got amnesty for all the people who were currently living in the country illegally before 1982. At the time, that number was estimated at about 2 million people. 2 million people could now come out of the shadows and become legal citizens in the country where they live. It was a remarkable concession made by one side, but it came with an obligation agreed to by the other side to, among other things, fund construction of a viable border wall to increase the immigration department's budgets and, most importantly, heavily fine employers who continue to hire illegal workers. Now, heavy fines were to be paid by employers who do not verify the citizenship of every employee. This was a classic quid pro quo. One side gets amnesty, the other side gets law and order. It was a rare moment of cooperation among the major parties that contained meaningful and clearly defined obligations. It was the last time in my memory that such an agreement was made. Now, the only reason we're still talking about immigration all these years later is because the law was never enforced. That formerly illegal immigrants, well, they got their citizenship, but the law and order part was simply ignored. And for many reasons, mostly greed. Employers wanted their cheap labor, and no one had the stomach to enforce compliance. It quickly became obvious after the bill was passed that no one was going to stop employing cheap, undocumented labor, and nobody was going to arrest them when they did. And the funding for a border wall that was granted in that bill was never spent. It wasn't until Congress passed the Build the Wall, Enforce the Law Bill in 2018, 32 years later before any of this previously allocated money was actually spent and the wall was built. All it took was courageous leadership to finally uphold that part of the law and get it done. And guess what happened? People stopped crashing the border. Well, the problem I have with all this is if Congress passes a law, well, that law should be enforced, right? I mean, by Congress. It doesn't matter if you agree with the law or not. It's the law. And if you don't like it, well, you have the absolute right to change it through legislation. But openly flouting the major component of that law doomed the Simpson-Mazzoli Act to failure. And this is something Congress is obligated to address. Now imagine the ramifications of Congress not enforcing the laws they pass. I mean, you have lawlessness approved by government. Think about this. We're all legally obligated to pay our fair share of taxes and to obey traffic laws and to not rob banks. I mean, these are laws that are just as important as any law, including that law that makes it illegal to hire undocumented workers. But what actually happened is that people were openly shamed for even thinking about enforcing the law that they just passed. I mean, any movement towards enforcement will get you branded as a racist, and no one wants to be associated with that, even if all you're trying to do is enforce a law to make the whole thing work as intended. I hope that doesn't make me sound like a bad guy just because I want to see this hard-fought and well-formed law enforced. It's just that at some point, a stand has to be made that says everyone is subject to the laws of the land and everyone should be made to abide by them. I mean, no one, especially those who pass the laws, has the right to ignore them. Otherwise, why in the hell would I drive 65 miles an hour? You see my point? Who's the person to tell us what laws we need to abide by and which laws I can ignore? I need that cheat sheet because I thought we were supposed to obey them all. Unless, of course, you want anarchy, which it would appear many do. You see, unrest is good for business and keeping the people divided. Now, I don't believe in conspiracy theories because it would take too many people keeping their mouths shut to make the good ones even possible. 
This is just one example of a well-established method to maintain control of the masses by keeping them at odds with each other. That way, the daily fraud and corruption can continue without getting noticed. It's the shiny object doctrine. But without law and order, we have what we have today, riots in the streets. And if you doubt me, just turn your TV on. They're rioting every weekend all over the country. When it comes to immigration law, there is only one governmental body in charge of making that law, and that is the United States Congress. Well, what has happened in the last 32 years since that last piece of significant immigration law was passed is that Congress has figured it's easier to have the president make laws from the White House in the form of executive orders instead of actually changing laws legislatively. President Bill Clinton changed aspects of this law through executive orders. Then Bush changed them back. Then Obama made a whole bunch of new rules. And then Trump redid everything again. And this is our nation's official policy on immigration. Congress has had no part in it since the last omnibus bill passed in 1986. They have left such things to the president to decide because they don't have the political will to do their constitutionally stated obligations to do so. So we have this roller coaster policy of immigration that makes us all look like a bunch of amateurs fumbling with things we don't want to deal with. Unfortunately, those things are human lives, hundreds of thousands of them. And all they're trying to do is gain access to the prosperity that this country offers. Instead, Congress has punted on the issue for 35 years. So if Congress is not bound to enforce the laws they pass, then what are we doing here? Passing laws so that we can say we did our job, then turn around and undermine the efforts by shaming people who wish to uphold that very same law? What Congress has done is abdicated their constitutional duty to provide for secure borders. And by extension, their authority to write any laws. I mean, how can we trust Congress with anything if they refuse to uphold one of the most significant pieces of immigration law ever passed? I mean, to me, they have lost all credibility and have been deemed, again, by me, to be irrelevant. The one body that the entire foundation of this nation is built on is made of clay. Now, Congress has had single-digit approval ratings for years, and for very good reason. Yet the same old hack politicians continue to get reelected despite their record of incompetence. I tend to run out of adjectives when discussing this governmental body, and I just start sounding like a broken record. But, but man, there is no better place to start cleaning up this mess than the government agency that creates it all, and that is the House of Representatives and the Senate, collectively known as Congress. Now tell me I'm wrong. Point to one, just one governmental agency that operates under the same rules as every other American who is not a member of Congress. We're watching a bunch of petulant children run our country, and we all look the other way. Every day, there is nothing but partisan hackery, a constant drumbeat of hatred and opposition to whatever the other side says. It's a nonstop clown show with no sense of discipline. I mean, where are the people who will stand up to this nonsense? I mean, can you not see this? Please tell me, what am I missing here? So let me step up and state the obvious. Unless we put an end to government run by selfish politicians whose only objective is to maintain their lofty status, well, we will have no one to blame but our own complacent self when it all falls apart. And in my next podcast, I will tell you exactly how that can be done. This is Eric Corey. Thank you for listening.